Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by the Athletics' Liam Farm to discuss the Premier League thus far. Liam, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on. Liam, I mean, what are we, only six weeks into the new Premier League season? <laughs> Awful condensed mm -hmm. season at that. Um, we'll get to discussing some managerial changes, some player changes, but there's been a change of... There's been a change close to home for yourself this year, leaving your boyhood club, right <laughs> the Athletic. Can you tell us a bit more yeah. of what the move's been like and how's it gone so far? Sure. Um, it's It's been really good fun. Um, I had a really, really good sort of year um, at Brighton where I was, it was alongside my master's studies, which, which was really good fun doing sports performance analysis. So, see, you and I met at, at UCFB where I was more on sort of the coaching side. This was for me at undergraduate level and you were a lot more on the, you know, the, the big deal side of the, the, the business, the finance, um, you know, the, the big boy discussions, whereas it's me just putting out analysis of something then that I, I went sort of and just thought this is a, you know, realistically was a route into professional football in the elite game because for anyone that's seen me play football, I'm not at a good enough level at all to uh, earn a living from doing it. Um, and it was, yeah, a way that I could add value. So that was the route I sort of looked to go down and was fortunate to get a place uh, at Chichester Uni where I studied my master's uh, and alongside that, which you know, was, it was a fantastic year one as, as a fan to work for, you know, the club that you support is um, amazing. But beyond that, they get a lot of praise, right, I think, in the media for, you know, doing things in the right way, a sustainable way for sort of trusting people and building this. It's, you know, it's coming out at the expense of fans of developing good players and now, you know, a good head coach, but in developing quality people um, and helping them sort of progress on their career. So, yeah, as part of that, you know, doing a lot of filming of games, tagging matches. So anyone that's done any analysis, you know, the processes are the same of breaking things down, making stats, you know, I had great, great time really doing sort of pre and post-match presentations, showing clips to players, the staff, having sort of debriefs. Um, I think that was really where it came into my head that I said, look, the parts that I enjoy from this job the most are picking things out of a game and relaying that to people. And in, in that case at Brighton, it was to coaches or to staff or to players. And when that job role came up at The Athletic, as a company I'd, I'd read, as I sent to you just before we started for, for two years or so, regularly listened to their football cliches, pod and uh, the tactics pod that they do. And I was like, that's something that I think is really cool. That's like my primary source of information for football. Love to be a part of that. And to me, it was the same thing. You know, you're watching a game, we're taking some information out of it and you're relaying it to try, you know, enhance understanding or, um, you know, because people are interested in it. Now it's just a case of, uh, you know, it's, it's more online, it's uh, written form content. Um, or so, so, some of the TIFO stuff that uh, I help out with or in the podcast form. So for me, it's just a case of, you know, I think the journey and not a lot of people that I've seen have sort of gone between, I suppose, more of the journalism world. I don't really call myself a journalist because people like do actual training for that. And I just, you know, I just watch football. Um, but between that and the coaching sphere, I think it seems like a bigger gap than for me what it is because that process from analysis, you know, it's kind of, it's incredibly similar in terms of I'm still sitting there watching a game, just the out output looks different. I mean, you've been a great addition to the athletics so far, and if you don't mind me saying, I think having that playing and coaching background certainly informs your writing. But, I mean, mm. fortunately for some people, unfortunately for Seagulls fans, you're, you were just one of two big departures from Brighton uh, this year, the second being Graham Potter, who's recently appointed Chelsea boss. I mean, what can Blues mm -hmm. fans expect from Graham Potter and what he's brought to Brighton over mm. the past three, four seasons really helped build out yeah. that club, didn't he, Liam? Yeah, I can obviously shamelessly plug all the great work that's been done on The Athletic if people do want to read any of that um, amid some ramblings from me. Uh, I'd recommend that. But um, 
I, I won't necessarily go as far to say transform the club because I think a lot of the processes were already in there and I'm conscious that being a person behind the scenes, sort of on the analysis side, I think it can become very frustrating if everyone pins up Potter as this one individual that's responsible for it. Of course, he's developed. Um, he brought with him a great coaching staff, um, added to it with Ben Roberts and Bruno, who's taken with him to Chelsea. Obviously, he brought his head of recruitment to Brighton, uh, Carl McCauley, and has taken him as well. So these are relationships that he's built up over a period of time. And from what I've heard and from the people that I worked with that, you know, at times worked closely with him, that's a huge foundation, uh, understandably, sort of what he does. And beyond that, I think I think I saw sort of his first interviews or um, the videos of his first moments at Chelsea, where you know he's, he's speaking to I know he's speaking to social media people, and isn't going to say bad things, but about how he likes to operate. Um, but did really sort of change our style, um, which regardless of how people think football um, should be played and however you want to see things tactically, to undertake such a big shift, I think takes a lot of courage. Um, it takes definitely a, a long-term process of selling players, buying players, trying things, getting a lot of things wrong, then eventually getting them sort of more right. And obviously we were fortunate then to see the real fruition of that um, very much at the tail end of last season as well and at the start of this season. So I think Chelsea fans will, in a very un-Chelsea way, need to maybe expect some, not necessarily failure, but um, success might look very different at the start to just winning games of football. Um, I think is you know, and I appreciate that a club like Brighton, dare I say it in inverted commas, um, are very different to Chelsea. And that was my only real sort of, um, not question mark, but, you know, worry was this is a, a great manager, but this is like, if you think of the toughest contextual um, background to put him in of like, where's the hardest place to do what he wants to do? It's, it's going to be somewhere like Chelsea, but in terms of aesthetics of football and now, you know, effectiveness that we saw in his final games at Brighton, he's able to play really stylish football. And it's to the extent now where, it's not entirely reliant on certain individuals. You can take players out, put other people in, and it's not pinned down to just needing certain key players to always perform. People often say it's more of a, um, you know, the whole is great in the sum of its parts. That on paper, if you sort of took the 11 individuals and pitted them where you ranked them in the league for their position or, you know, their style of play, not many of them are up at the top, which is fine and great because it ended up being sustainable for us. So I think uh, that part is, is really exciting. Yeah, Brighton for me is just a fascinating case study. It's a whole Liam and zooming out. I mean, during Potter's time, you looked at Potter in the hot seat, mm-hmm. Dan Ashworth, technical director, Paul Berber, CEO, and then Tony Bloom overseeing everything, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you'd be there, find, there we find another club. I mean, at that state, well, at, during that tenure, that had a better set of executives than Brighton. And it really was a case mm-hmm. of the sum is greater than its parents. But we're looking at Brighton now. In the market for we see Deserby, Knutson, Andrew mm. Postacoglu mentioned. I mean, can you bring us up to speed with any developments on that thus far? Um, I mean, I'm no really uh, any privy to any information that doesn't end up on social media anyway. So um, from what I hear, everything is still sort of a, a work in progress. That's that's the beauty of people like Andy Naylor at uh, the Athletic that you know they might not always be the very first to break information, but that's because they're doing their due diligence checks to make sure what they're giving out is it's absolutely spot on. Um, but I think it's, you know, people are sort of trying to flip it now positively from a Brighton perspective. And I think this is, I think this is Paul Barber who said this when he was speaking about, you know, the reason why they let Potter go. And I mean, one, because I think his release force got activated, so they can't. But like the principle of, you know, not holding people hostage um, and being prepared to, to sell people. But as a club, our stock's never been higher. So although we've lost a, a fantastic, the, the best head coach in the history of this club and some key players, the calibre of coach and players now that we should be able to get in, have never been higher either. So, you know, theoretically, 
it's a really good test to have what the club is made of, as you say, sort of at the core. Um, we're fortunate to have, you know, a, a fan in charge of the club, a man who's made his um, money in, in sort of gambling, which I know it can be a, a controversial sub- subject, but for if you were to rank sort of the, the Premier League owners for controversy, I think gambling is actually quite low down. So Tony Bloom is a, is a fantastic man. I've, I've met him personally and he's a, he's a, he's a great guy. Um, sometimes he's in the away end at matches, which I know you obviously just wouldn't get with, with lots of owners and, um, I think has enough of a fan in him still to, to really enjoy that. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's a, a great test now for the club to see, OK, who can you bring in? And this is a chance to, to still evolve. This success is not entirely tied to, to Graham Potter. Of course, he's largely responsible for a lot of the success. But um, as you say, you've got those sort of key key people in place. And from what I've read, uh, they've had contingency plans already for, for Potter leaving or moving on from, I think, around lockdown. Um, so that just shows, you know, there's there's nothing that they will leave to chance, which is I think a, a big reason for their success. It's always for planning the, the next thing, etc. I'll have to give the brother his first shout out on the podcast. He actually met Tony Bloom over at an Ireland Georgia game in Tbilisi of all places, watching <laughs> then yeah. Brighton's Shane Duffy play for Ireland. So and he only had great things mm-hmm. to say about him too. Um, I mean, looking at other managerial changes, obviously the big one which has taken all the early record, all the, all the early noise. Uh, like a huge vacuum is, of course, been Manchester United's Eric Ten Hag. I mean, Liam, you've had uh-huh. quite a few games with United this season. What can you see that he's trying to do differently thus far? Well, I think he's an interesting case study because he obviously speaks and is very much from that, that Dutch school of football where um, in possession things are, are very much the, the priority, the pinnacle. There's a, a real sort of... Um, grounding in you know passing football possession football intricate stuff that can be aesthetically pleasing to watch and prepare to stick with that for the most part no matter what even if that means that results necessarily don't come it's a case of like really wanting that identity which I suppose as someone who's grown up consuming a lot of English football where that couldn't be much farther removed from what I was growing up and sort of raised on that sometimes that becomes hard for me to always I think appreciate but I've been really intrigued that there's always a threshold I think where every manager will have a tipping point of where they're prepared to concede whatever their philosophy, quote-unquote, is to, to win a game or to get success. And obviously we saw in the Liverpool game and in the Arsenal game, games where United didn't necessarily dominate the ball and control through possession and through passing the ball, but maybe more through defending, through sitting deeper. Admittedly, that uh, the first goal, I think it was the Anthony goal against Arsenal, was a wonderful flowing move and actually broke that down in a piece we did, a live piece for the Athletic and saying, you know, how this felt like a very, you know, the most 10 hard goal they've scored to date. But even Ten Hag is showing that there's times where you might win in a way that's very different to um, sort of your, your typical style. And they they almost felt, and I, I hate boxing like results to, to managers, but some of the performances they had on the social when they were doing really well, it felt like it was, you know, you probably could see that sort of panning out in a similar way of being resolute out of possession, maybe hitting teams a bit more on the break, which in my opinion is perfectly fine. And maybe sometimes it needs to be for United when you look at their personnel. Rashford in particular started the season really well with some really good forward passes in, in their midfield players. Um, fullbacks are okay for the most part. I think their backline is good without being too outstanding. So you go, okay, maybe this this is the way that they've got an elite level runner in behind. Um, it, it would be slightly redundant despite what Ten Hag wants to try and fit a certain system to players that just aren't, aren't um, you know, in a position to, to have that. I mean, like you zoom out and you see it as a whole. You see United have changed the manager at Chelsea. Um, Bournemouth, they're still searching for a new incumbent. I mean, how how long do you think it would be fair to evaluate the likes of a Ten Hag, the likes of a Potter and your, their new team? 
especially it's in a this, great question. Especially in this of all seasons too, with such a congested fixture schedule and everything yeah. else. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a number one, it's difficult. I, I read an interesting quote from, I don't know how well this would apply to answer the question, but from Potter before when he was speaking about young players. Um, I can't remember if it was Aaron Connolly, but anyway, there's a player he was referencing and saying how he threw the the, the 50 game number as a, a thing for sort of uh, developing a, a young player to see generally they've got time to come through, to settle into embed. And maybe that's fair. That's what, a, I mean, for any sort of big club that's playing a European competition, they're probably going to hit that number anyway. So that's a full season worth, um, maybe a season and a little bit. So I, I think after a full a full campaign, you get an idea. But I think it's always interesting to see sort of following that when they start up again, how things look compared to the season before when you then had, especially like if a manager comes in now during the season, once they then had a full pre-season or a transfer window. Um, the problem is that the context is always moving, right? There's always something where... Like we say now, oh, it'll be, be the World Cup. Then come post-World Cup, we'll say, OK, well, then they're having a the fallout from the World Cup. So this is still going to be knock-on effects. Um, there's always so much to try and sort of ground it in. And, and that's why I think the beauty, but the difficulty. Now, a lot of the work that we do um, on our site, a lot of it is using data and using stats. It's trying to then use those and basically not devoid tactics. Um, and what we see, I'm, I'm not going to say the eye test. I think that's, that's a horrible term. But, um, you know, what you can evaluate observationally to not say, not suggest, sorry, that that's got no predictive power, that, you know, not just stats that are going to measure and say, we can use this to model. Okay, but we can also see what players are doing on the pitch and try to, if we're well-researched and we've, you know, we've looked at enough things and have done it the right way, we can try and actually observe, are oh, that pattern of play or the way that they continue with these set-piece routines seems to have real long-term potential to be really good. Um, so I, I think it's just trusting enough different sources that you can find ways to try and measure it um, to sort of answer your original question, I don't know, but 50 games to me sounds good. Maybe it's just a nice round number and I'm an easy human being that, that likes that. Um, but no, I think it's it's probably longer than we all think is, is the real honesty, right? I mean, overall, it's an interesting one for me. I have Omar Chowdhury on this podcast before of 21st mm-hmm. Group and he speaks about performance against resources. And it always interests, interests and intrigues me when you see a manager who's such as Graham Potter, who's performed really well in relation to the resources he had at Brighton. And he got the maximum out of that group. I think anyone could attest to that. I mean, Eddie Howe is going to be a fascinating case study because we've seen he's had the new managerial bounce at Newcastle. And he seems to have built a proper culture there. He's got some money to spend. But as you know, as you spend money, new money comes in, expectations yeah. grow. He is the man to take Newcastle from A to B, but is he the man to get them from B to C? The jury's still out on that. And, you know, for me, it's just fascinating. But, um, I mean, we're going through managerial changes, obviously, some changes in the dugout. But on the field, there's been quite a few changes too. And one I want to draw your attention to has been the one of Erling Haaland and City's new Norwegian up front. How has Pep Guardiola and his City side adapted to playing with Haaland? Um... I can't pretend to have watched all of their games. I've, I've watched a fair bit. But, um, I've not watched everything. I think you, you don't need to do too much adaptation. I, I think the style that they play, because they're so possession heavy and do create, I think probably 80 to 90% of their approach play is still the same because he is so good. I know he's got the speed where you go, okay, theoretically, every time we get the chance in a mid block, we just want to try and thread it through. But He's so good aerially. I mean, you saw saw the assist and the goal um, for uh, for was it yeah the, the winner in the Champions League in the week where this is a man who 
I imagine his physical test performance comes up with some disgustingly good numbers, let alone his ability to you know, jump or to reach these crosses, to also score from them at an immense rate. Um, but they're such a possession-dominant team that can create in so many different ways. You saw they had the best set-piece goal difference, and I think they had the most set-piece goals ever for a Premier League side last season, um, which for a team that I feel like we never talk about having a set-piece threat, we just speak about City because they're so good and so relentless in open play for working in those tough spaces, scoring with cutbacks, we all now sort of associate them with, um, to have that sort of well-rounded threat. Was it Shearer said a match of the day? He was like, oh, Haaland will get 40 goals just by standing in the box and having tap-ins. And that doesn't seem to be a completely you know, fallible um, sort of idea that he had then. So I, I think their tactical approach largely looks quite similar. Um, there were some ideas that I didn't think were ridiculous at the time, by the way, that he might not suit playing in so much organised play when he did so well um, at Dortmund in more of a transitional league. But I think that speaks to the quality of player. And again, then it's how we sort of evaluate footballers of saying, is a player not doing something, meaning that they can't do it or they don't do it? And obviously it's not going to be a binary box of one or the other, but it might be like a continuum of how much is it a player not doing something versus having the inability. I think you see with Haaland's physical profile, I love the fact that he doesn't touch the ball a lot in build-up. I know he gets weirdly berated with those like touch statistics of oh, eight touches in a game. And then like one, you watch his off-the-ball movements. They're truly elite. I know there's been some stuff on Twitter about his scanning that he's very, very spatially aware, which he probably doesn't even need to be, given his speed and his power, that he could give a defender two or three yards and, and still still get there. But I, th- I think you just see his all-around game, really. Um, and that, again, has always been the hallmark of a quality striker, right? Of don't need to touch the ball a lot. And then when you do, to score or to have sort of quality, um, I think the Bournemouth game was a great case study where, like, they're playing this incredibly compact low block and he's just going to go, you know what, I'll, I'll pin a defender, like, falling over, managing to, to spray a pass. I think he set up Gundogan for, for the goal um, or, or had a really good sort of final action. So... He's really good. And there's a great video I watched of him. Uh, I think it's either pre-match or in a training session, but the video's taken, someone's filming it from on the pitch and it's got him dribbling and cutting inside off the left. Like when you just see him in that video and the the power, but the balance he has as he strikes the ball and hits it so hard. And yet I feel like I never see him end up on the floor after he shoots. He's always controlled, always landing. You know, like that ability to transfer muscle and power and be controlled is is truly remarkable. And I think that's why City don't have to adapt because they've got enough quality creators on both sides, different phases of the game. That De Bruyne cross for him at Villa was a great one where it doesn't even look up, can put the ball in a general area uh, and then we'll find a way to score. They're so unreal to watch this season, Man City, especially in the final third. Um, to be honest, mm. you know, not much to be outside of Haaland has changed from last season in terms of having maximal width on both sides. Yes, you could have inverted wingers on both sides or you could play with a forward and on the left and you could see even perhaps Joe Cancelo or Kyle Walker at times maintaining width on the right. But it's been those half spaces runs, the likes of De Bruyne, the likes of Bernardo Silva that they're making on the left and right flank that collapse the defence and collapse that gap between the centre-back and full-back. Last season, it was the defensive or it was the opponent's team's prerogative to defend against those half space runs. And they could concede, conceivably, the cross into the box from wider areas and defend that because they didn't have that number. Mm. Obviously, this season, you have Haaland in the box. So, I mean, it's crazy. They've been a joy to watch this season. But, I mean, looking at their main competitors, main challengers, Liverpool, they haven't been off to the best of starts. I'm starting to wonder, Liam, is that down to any individual errors, so to speak? Or do you think it's kind of a wider trend? We hear Yinders, we hear Klopp speak about our identity is intensity. In a season condensed such as this, 
can you last a whole season playing the way they are at the moment? Or, I mean, well, challenging the way they are at the moment is probably better. They've played this way for a number of years under clock now. I don't think that's that's the issue. I think it's just the difficulty in sustaining uh, success and not just success, but like elite level not even a glimpse of failure success over a period of years. I mean, I can't think of many teams apart from maybe, I'm looking at this from a very UK-centric perspective, by the way, so there are European teams I'm missing out here. I, I apologise, but since sort of United, we've not seen teams have this sort of length of time of, of domination. Um, and like people have said, for City, if there was no Liverpool, they'd be put on an even higher pedestal. And the same for Liverpool, if there was no City doing this, you know, it's almost harder to look at their success because they just, you know, they and that's why the games against each other are, are so, so good. Um, so I think they just set a ridiculously high bar for themselves that, you know, then if they've been an eight, nine, ten out of ten team for two, three seasons, four seasons, to sometimes be a seven now looks bad because their average is so, so high. Um, that They've looked more suspect defensively than what I've ever seen. Um, I know Van Dijk has a very sort of laissez-faire um, defensive approach, but has had some moments this season where he's looked like he could do more. The same with Trent. I, I think he, he does get massively berated for his defensive ability and I don't think anyone needs me to sort of dissect that anymore. Um, but teams seem to be finding a way to constantly getting players either up against him or combining around him. Um, so then how they sort of deal with that is is really difficult. But this is a team that has played a lot of football that must be incredibly sort of exhausted. I'm, I'm not going to get my violin out because I think the media do a lot of um, sort of sympathy for Liverpool more than other teams like there are a high number of other teams that also play the amount of football that they do um, and I, I think yeah they're just an example of and football fans probably don't like to hear it normally of how difficult it is to sustain that and, and to win every single week there's a reason why most teams don't do it um, it's it's really that difficult um, and as you say if you are then predicated around intensity to try and do it in a condensed period of time. Um, and they've had key injuries, right, as well. I, I think it's, football is never really one thing. As much as fans, and I'm guilty of this myself at times, liking scapegoats, you've got injuries to key sort of players. Um, I think losing Mane is a huge one when you look at the amount of possession now. I think their precious isn't quite as good. Um, and that, I think, then always a knock-on effect because from a tactical perspective, if you don't press as well, then suddenly you're probably going to force fewer turnovers. That's probably fewer sequences to attack. You also probably going to have less control of the game because your position can pass around you more. I think there's probably, if you went through it all, maybe 10, 15, 20 things that you could sort of break down that are reasons that are just slightly imperfect. But if you stitch them all together, that then becomes one sort of bigger problem. Um, you look at Darwin Nunez has had, I think, fewer than 300 minutes this season. He had a suspension, obviously. Um, this started okay when he did play. Um, and then obviously with the game's been postponed recently, hasn't had any minutes at all. Um, it's now sort of spread it in pairs with Champions League football. And again, that's just another slightly imperfect thing, right? But add them all together, I think there's your bigger problem. I mean, that just shows, like, we as football fans, Liam, we're so, so fickle, aren't we? It was only five, six weeks ago, Nunez was scoring on his Liverpool debut. Liverpool were after beating City 3-1. Haaland was, <laughs> he was many pundits picked to be the flop of the season after his two power yeah. misses. But I mean, if we're looking at City as perennial contenders, who is most likely to challenge them out of that chasing pack? Have you been impressed by the start of the North London duo, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. No, they're, they're fun teams to watch. I, th I think it's a really exciting time more than ever to, to be watching the Premier League because there's genuine competition, I think, like within different parts of the table now. 
Um, you've got more teams that feel like they're pushing for really the top half. Um, Brighton came, I think, from memory, ninth last season on the final day uh, and could have finished something like 13th. We'd lost against West Ham, so like, you know, it's, and, and it's what people want, right? No one wants it to be a walkover and we want there to be a big push for third and fourth place or for, for the European spots. Um, but I think Arsenal are exciting. Obviously, they they feel a bit like a, a city light version in terms of how they want to try and play and that's obviously to be expected with Arteta. I think they're particularly great. I think people are going to bond with them a lot more now. I've started watching the, the All or Nothing. I think once you see inside, um, you see inside a team in the club and you see the real human element of some players and you know just, just those things that you wouldn't normally see, you inevitably go or you just have a, a, a warmness towards them. Um, for me, I always enjoy seeing Ben White doing well, obviously, as a, as a Brighton Academy graduate. Um, and, and I think it's just, you, you see those things that, people just don't associate with, with footballers of having those human problems. Um, I think these are things that are now coming more to the fore because rightly people are having these discussions about, you know, we're saying about Liverpool struggling. Well, if they're playing a game every something like three and a half days, four days, and people are now saying, we need to look beyond this, just physically having an impact, but psychologically, that's going to seriously burn some people out. And a lot of these as well are fairly young people. Not that it's done okay for their older, by the way, I'm not trying to suggest that, but if you're getting 19, 20, 21 year olds coming in and, this is their first experience of, of senior professional football. That's really not okay. Like that's a, I think that's a dangerous precedent um, to be setting. But I digress, sorry, because you asked about the North London teams. Um, they have been really good, I think, um, both in very different styles. And I think they'll make for a really, really exciting clash between them. Obviously, Spurs are, are good at being so resolute. Um, and it feels like Conte has just taken them to that next level. Obviously, a very good sort of defence first manager. Bringing in more depth, I think, they had a good enough starting eleven, and probably lacked the the strength and depth. I think they've got really exciting dynamism. They've got players in wide areas that can offer quality. Um, they've got one of the best strikers in the world for me in sort of Harry Kane, and there's just goal scorers all the way across that front line now. And they've they've got the creators too. Um, I thought they were quite good at Chelsea for the most part. Um, what when they drew, I know they sort of had the ball bopped around them for sort of the first half, but I thought the way they grew into the game and I can't speak on the soft skills and like the mental resilience of a group, but, you know, to come back in games is, is always a good thing. Um, and Arsenal were just so stylish. You know, I, I grew up watching very much sort of Wenger ball for Arsenal um, and people had a lot of reservations then about high passing football. Um, you know, they, they walk it in, quote unquote, but I think now Norata today, you know, the way they seem to be moving and both teams now have set pieces as well. A really good fun to watch. Obviously, Spurs have a new set piece coach. Arsenal, I think, got one the summer before last. Um, and just seeing all these teams evolving, I think, is really exciting because I think the floor, particularly for the top half in the Premier League, is, is coming up. I, I think the ceiling probably can't go any further just because of how good teams have been. Um, but they're, they're really, really great fun to watch. And likewise, I'd encourage anyone to watch academy teams and for those age groups as well, because there's some really quality players coming out. Arsenal boys in particular uh, have really good academy players. Something which we were discussing briefly off camera, Liam, and that was that quality gap in the Premier League. It seemed as it seems this season as narrower than ever before. You look at the profile and personnel of player at Newcastle, a West Ham United, a Leeds United, bringing in three Champions League players that can, they can bring in. You look at the quantity then, you're looking in terms of parachute payments. You look at Nottingham Forest, the well-publicised case of them bringing in 21 players this summer. Mm. I mean, when we're looking at this, zooming out, do you see any one of those teams, perhaps perhaps not Nottingham Forest, but do you see anyone perhaps damaging 
that top six and gain an entry because we've seen teams on a precipice for many a year. Yes. We've seen the likes of your David Moyes' Everton. We've seen David Moyes again at West Ham, Newcastle United under Perdue. But is there anyone out of the chasing pack that you reckon sustainably and in the medium to long term can damage that top six? Regrettably, it's probably Newcastle. Um, I only say regrettably because I'm I'm still bitter about them beating us to the Championship title about six years ago. Um, but I think they are, in terms of, you mentioned the, the calibre of players they bring in. Yeah, I'm guilty of it too, still being bitter. So please, no one think I'm um, completely anti-football fans because I'm not. I'm, I'm one of you too. Um, but no, you see the the players they brought in there. Uh, Gimarish, like I was, I was watching him at the Amex. Um, we, we drew nil-nil with Nick Pope, who is an outstanding. He's like exactly what Newcastle need. Immensely good shot stopper, one of the best in defending his box. They they do play out a bit, but they're not like ridiculously expansive. So like he's literally a perfect fit for them. Uh, but Bruno Guimaraes is like such a talented player, and he's a great example because the way in which I was raised to sort of play football and how central midfielders operate, he's like the farthest thing for what you do when you receive under pressure. For what I was taught, like the way he'll try and turn out or the risk that he'll take, just like the the speed at which his brain thinks and then makes that happen with his feet um, you know he plays like he's dancing almost I think he he's a great player and Alexander Rizek someone that I've not watched tons of but when I have seen him again and I had a, had a great debut just like so many exciting players and also clicking at a really good rate I think that's happening I know you sort of mentioned about discussing sort of tactical stuff I think the rate at which good players are clicking and adjusting straight away to the Premier League and I'm, I'm not going to just put it on this pedestal of being so far clear of all the other European leagues because I think it's probably more marginal than some suggest, but I think the style looks different, but I don't think the quality gap is like mahoosive. Um But the players are now coming in and like, they're adjusting straight away. And I think that really speaks to how just true, and I think we forget how like seriously elite these people are sometimes and what they do. I think a lot of the time it's because it, it's hard to actually measure and compare between players um, in like a truly meaningful way aside from just sort of stats and, like you can see it, can't you? If you, if you watch a hundred meter race, you can see who comes where because they they timed it. That's not arguable. Um, but like yeah, to see these are coming in straight away, bang, he's he's playing well. Um, Brighton ended last season with with Marco Pereira came in, had a slightly shaky debut, and then was player of the season. Like not only to be really good, but the way that sport works and sport performance is, you've got to be good when the moment counts. And obviously now with the games are coming and they're coming and they're just pouring out of our ears, it feels like like you wake up, oh my god, it's Champions League again. And like players are just hitting the ground. It's it's more than running. Some of them are like sprinting. Now, this is ridiculous when you consider that a lot of them will be going new country or different country, uprooting their life. Like this just I, I, I moved from Brighton to London this year. And that that took me long enough to adjust to. Like, and these are people that some of them are younger than me coming halfway across the world and suddenly they're scoring like a hat trick on debut. It's I think it's really, really fascinating and really cool. Yeah, I mean, you look at the modern hybrid footballer and you look at the prospected and suspected changes that's going to take place over the next 10 years. I believe in one of your athletic pieces recently, there was a neat study tied to the University of South Denmark, I believe, and it was getting, yeah, it was preparing coaches and analysts for the future players. What was it? The, yeah. the average passes per minute in the game now is 10.7, 12. They reckon by 2030, it'll be as high as 16, 17. Which is an incredible yeah, uh, It really is, yeah. I think in World Cups are a really good case study for I think because obviously they they come every four years. Well, currently they do until Benga has his way, which I, I think actually I quite like some of his his new rules for what it's worth. Um but they're a great case study because 
there are, you know, we're speaking about Liverpool now. When you look at their success, feels like a really long time they've been good for, but it's that's one World Cup cycle, and that just goes to show how long a time it is in football. You know, the uh, is it one of the Michael Calvin books where he speaks about the average tenure of a coach being like a year and a half or like less than two seasons. The football just turns over, and as you say, that's probably a reason now why games getting quicker, players are getting quicker, and and as such. Results need to be faster. You know, things need to happen more quickly. Then everything then moves in sort of opposite directions. Of everything needs to be now. I think that's you know one of the risks we're going to potentially see at Chelsea. Of realistically, if Potter has one or two wins in his first ten, or say up to when the World Cup comes, you know, are there actually going to be serious question marks about? Because Chelsea could afford to do that. Could afford to say, look, let's let's you know get get rid of him and, and bring him to someone else. They, they've got no problem with that. So yeah, to see the game evolve at a rate and then. We've seen changes, haven't we, to to crossing now, how that's changed, that it's not just byline things, it's teams playing from from sort of uh, the half spaces. I think player inversion is a really cool thing now. And we're now seeing it in fullbacks, which it feels like it's becoming a little bit ridiculous now, seeing, you know, players all, all over the pitch, all playing on like the, the you know the wrong side, so to speak, or inverted. So you've got Cancelo playing an outside of the boot, um, right foot across to Haaland, you know, these these things that we saw it further forward in, say, the early 2010s. I know it was, it was very much like a, a pep thing. We had it with, with Robin and Ribery, didn't we? You know, those those wingers dribbling aside. Now we get it with full-backs. And you're like, they always come by surprise, these trends as well. And I think no one ever really sort of predicts them. Just someone tries them once and it sort of sticks. Uh, Brighton, Graham Potter was playing inverted wing-backs before he left and it was working fantastically. He had Sonny March, a left footer on the right, and Leandro Trost had a right footer on the left. And yeah, it's just like, there's always something new. I think... It bothers me that I can't like see anything coming because I feel like I I watch too much football anyway. Um, maybe that's why you can't see the the wood for the tree sort of thing. Um, but I think just like, the way in which it's it's evolving tactically is is fascinating. And now how um, I think the Premier League did a really good sort of tactical trend review last season, and they show how like it's now just standard for teams to press high up the pitch and the teams to play out. Like that isn't the big glorious thing it was five six years ago. If if a team does that now, you know we we saw Burnley go get relegated and Michael Cox did a piece on how they were effectively the last team to play true long ball football or long pass football in, in the Premier League um, and I don't think we'll see too many more um, that, that sort of do that but at the same time I think some of the best holes that I see are and the biggest weapons now are keepers that can kick for distance when you see City set up to, to play short from a goal kick and then Edison can clip it like uh, he holds the world record right for the longest goal kick I think um, I'm sure yeah, to, but to clip onto someone yeah, but... Again, it's nearly an injustice to say Ederson clipped in this. You, you'd see him hitting it to the chest, hitting it to the exact yeah. pec muscle from yeah. some VA The precision. It's incredible. Hmm. No, it's it's, uh, it's an absolute joke. I think that's... It's just sometimes it's hard to really appreciate how good these people are. Um, just some... some like the, As I said, the, the floor is, is being raised so much. Uh, I think this World Cup in particular... I know there's a quite rightly a lot of reservations about having played in the winter. Um, there's questions about that, but I think on a technical tactical level, this should be comfortably like the best tournament that we've we've ever seen. And it's this is the last one as well, I think, before it jumps up to more teams, uh, which I've got no issue with because I think great more teams should be able to play at the World Cup. That's great. They'll probably just all go out in the group stages, but that's a great opportunity for some players and fans. So to see this in like this should be the highest quality we've had in this this condensed format, yeah. I mean, if we are going to zoom out and look at the macro, I mean, one of the first and one of the earlier pieces you did for the Athletic this season, Liam, I have to say, it was absolutely fantastic, and that was on the death of the on the death of the through ball. 
So mm. you analyzed the three seasons between the 18-19 Champions League season 21-22. Through balls are down by 50%. Now, just to give everyone a broad overview, what is your definition of a through ball? Sure. This wasn't my specific definition, but this was from FBref, which is, by the way, a fantastic data source for anyone to use. If anyone knows of uh, Statsbomb, who are some of the leading pioneers, really. I'm not being paid to say that, by the way. They're just really good at what they do um, in sort of football data. Um, so FBref, spelled literally F-B-R-E-F.com. Um, they do, if you can think of a stat, they do it for any of like, the top five leagues in, in sort of Europe and Champions League World Cup. And they define a through ball as uh, a completed pass, I think it was, that goes between um, someone in the opposition defensive line that's into the space and behind. So akin to the example I always give, this is probably a terrible one because this isn't a through ball pass, but do you remember when Alexandre Pato scored uh, at Barcelona? I think it was this for, was this for Milan? And he was like Milan, 20 he seconds in and then knocked defense. it through. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, like 20 seconds in. So that's always my example of like a defence splitting pass, a through ball, slide ball pass. There's loads of names for it. Um, and it, it just came to me on a run, I think, one day. I was like, when was the last time I saw a player like score from a through ball, go 1v1 against the goalkeeper and, and put it past them? I thought, I was like, I fucking don't see that enough anymore. So being the nerd that I am, went and had a quick look at some of the numbers and spoke to the, the data analyst, to, to Mark Carey at the Athletic, and was like, just badgering him about, can you help me with, with some of these stats? And then looked over and was like, oh, the, the drop-off is, is quite mental. And I thought, that's interesting because I know from reading other stuff that passes are going up. So you think of teams are playing more um, more passing-based football, well, then that means there's even fewer three balls because three ball is still a pass. So the rate of three balls is then dropping and it's the case. I think now we're seeing teams have done so much work in possession. You've got to be good now defensively. So teams are having really good mid-block shapes. I spoke about VAR having an impact in that as well, that obviously your runs have to be timed perfectly, but also massively the rise of the sweeper-keeper. So having that, that goalkeeper that can come off the line. Um, and I think that, impact it directly and indirectly obviously one they can come out and they can literally clear the ball but also if you're now attacking at Man City as a prime example you know with someone like Edison you go I can't bother playing that through ball because he's just going to come and clear it like it discourages you from even doing it let alone not being able to complete the pass I think it's those knock-on effects and like you have to massively consider that from a tactical perspective and from a data perspective because footballers are still humans although some of them might play like robots and do things really efficiently like they they have thought process thought processes that go on and will be encouraged by certain things or discouraged and it's then yeah I think just sort of identifying those trends and going okay this is a thing um, and I spoke about it in the piece as well that it's I initially sort of viewed it as a dying art but wanted to move away from that because when I looked at it I mean one I didn't do any like tests for significance so any data people please don't attack me um, I deliberately left that out as it was just it's sort of a fun piece I was doing um, so I can't say that with any any statistical significance Um but I thought, you know, that the drop-off was, was still noteworthy. And it's also an evolution. It's changing now. You see you've got the rise of then sort of the false nine or the nine and a half, if you like, the Harry Kane type striker that will drop in to play that onto a winger, um, you know, onto a number 10 or a central midfielder that's running beyond. Whereas historically, that was the other way around. It was a central midfielder playing a through ball to number nine. But we might now see that going the other way. You've got Haaland coming to the Premier League. You've got uh, Darwin Nunez, Alexander Rizek. You've got I think you're now seeing a not quite a resurgence is wrong, but in the Premier League, we're getting more high-profile signings of players who look, dare I say, just a phenotypically very wrongly of me. Um, you know, pitching all these players, people that look like what a striker looked like maybe 10, 15 years ago, which for me is just really cool. Football, I think, just works in cycles. We're just seeing again another example of that. Yeah, I mean, two of the best through ball assists I can say I've seen thus far this season. I think one would be Gundogan to. Haaland for the half-trick goal against Palace. Mm -hmm. 
was absolutely incredible, precise finishing again from uh, the Norwegian. And the second would have been a game you would have attended recently, in fact, Brighton Leicester, 5 2. Thielmans recovering the ball in yeah. the field. That ball for Pats and Daka. I doubt you will see a better all season. So, so good. No, it was uh, so weighted. And, and the speed to do that and see it so quickly in transition, yeah, to, to play that. And again, for what it's worth, Robert Sanchez is a goalkeeper. Incredibly good at coming off of his line. The 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 margin for error now, I think, in, in this is an elite-level sport in general, but football in particular, it's just so narrow. People are so good now. Like, there's there's very few flawed deficiencies. I think now that you see the amount of goals that come about either off of mistakes or off of, like, rebounds, these moments in the game where it's not that you can't prepare for them because you kind of can, but these things that it, it genuinely takes a moment of magic now, I think, more than ever to sort of win a game or to have something sort of fall your way. Um, yeah, there's, there's, it's so, so, so difficult. We're going to continue on the topic of tactical trends. I mean, we are in a World Cup, Liam, or we are in the middle of a World Cup year, Liam. I mean, what are you expecting to see? I mean, over the last Euros wasn't too far away. Last summer we saw obviously continued rise of the wing backs and plays along the wing as opposed to the centre. I mean, that that was another good piece on the analyst this year about how less and less plays going through the middle in the final third. I mean, what are we mm. expecting to see in Qatar this winter? I'm hoping very nicely to see a goal from kickoff. I'm seeing more and more teams try a little kickoff pattern. I know, I know, uh, Bournemouth did it full of ages ago. United tried it against their. Uh, I think was it was it Liverpool? They tried it and got it wrong. I've seen Sparta Rotterdam did it. Uh, Real Madrid have done it. I think they tried it a few preseason games. They got a disallowed goal. Um, and it's like that because you know we everyone felt the throw-ins were a bit niche sort of three four years ago, and now they're still kind of a little bit niche. But I think a lot of people, at least in the tactics sphere and analytics sphere, are like no one you know completely like is taken aback by by the thought of it. And I think again now you're seeing. The long throws start to come back in again. Um, again, these things sort of work in cycles, but it's it's like the last thing that I can think of that no one has tried yet is having, or that is consistently tried, is having like these kickoff patterns that to try and score from. Um, but I think it's going to be a fascinating World Cup. Um, sort of tactically, you've got a lot of managers who, or not a lot, sorry, but you've got a few examples now of, of managers who have left or new managers coming in. Um, you've got a lot of teams that are probably peaking. So. I'm not saying England are at their peak because they should be far from it, but knowing when they brought in the EPPP in 2011, they've since redacted this as, a, as an idea, but um, I can't remember who the, the head of the FA was or whoever it was said in 2013 that the plan was to win the 2022 World Cup or have a squad capable of doing that, um, which you know is, is the logical succession from where we've been in the last two tournaments. Um, France obviously have their battles then to um, deal with what's looking like Paul Pogba sort of not being fit, but I think yeah, there's this real interest and again the floor feels like it's coming up at international level. I know the big difficulty really is tactically this should really probably be quite a bad tournament because teams are going to have so little time to prepare. But does that mean then people just put a lot of stock into having a good defensive shape, having quality players in possession, maximising set pieces even more where you can do stuff repeatedly? Um, yeah, it's good. And I think that the fallout is probably a real worry when you think about injuries or players having moves sort of post-tournament um, it's it's probably going to be really hectic I think yeah and then again looking forward to seeing these Nations League games at the end of this month and seeing what managers do sort of in advance It's all ahead of us and in a season like none other suspected with a June finish um, Liam look it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on 
Um, very impressive stuff that you're doing with the Atlantic. That's very, but I mean, as we bring the podcast to close, one question I always ask the guests at the end is that bit on the piece of advice. I mean, indeed, what piece of advice would you give to people who would be interested in following or threading a similar path such as yourself? I think you need to go out and just try things because just through sort of more exposure and I mean, one, that's that time at you, as you know, I wouldn't be sat here speaking to you now and um, as I am sort of a, it's an open day so and that's one of the biggest things and if people are fortunate enough to to like I was to go to sort of university when you do get that freedom it's definitely sort of use it and try to say yes to as many things as you can obviously try not to sort of burn yourself out but just through exposure then you get to one meet people which are great because you learn things you you then get access to more sort of opportunities there's a great book that I read that did a study and found that the when they looked at sort of finding a random person from around the world or like a person working at a company it took them on average, I think about three people to find that. So I would ask you and you might say you knew a person who knew a person and then you'd find that person. And like you think about how many people are one person away from you. So the amount of people that you know, then if I become friends with you, I then can get access sort of to all those people. And then it's opportunities as well. You, you try things, you find out what you like, you know, as things evolve, they might change as well. Um, so I think, yeah, just, just sort of try it. And then hopefully you get upskilled enough. Um, I'm fortunate now to, be able to do something that I really, really enjoy. Um, and I like to say that's because I tried enough things and got enough practice and then just learned things. Um, I think if you can enjoy the process of learning as well, that's that's really, really great. And yeah, and just just keep pushing yourself. Fantastic, Liam. Some great words there. All the thank best. You. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me.